on a wedding day, when would you consider the couple to actually be married? So as someone who performs weddings, I've actually thought about this a little bit in the past. So what do you say? When is the couple actually married? Okay. Yeah. I mean, you've already given a couple different answers, right? I mean, the pronouncement, you know, I now pronounce you is typically something that we go through. Sometimes it's the signing of the marriage certificate. You know, some people think you actually have to have witnesses, but not in Virginia. Um, so, you know, just, just the minister. So there you go. There's that. Um, you know, because a lot of people have the idea that you have to have ministers that also sign the certificate, at least not maybe in some other states, but not in Virginia, not in Texas. And I don't think in Indiana either, because I've done weddings in all three states. So, I mean, it could be, you could say maybe it's the exchange of the rings. You could say it's the vows, right? You could say it's the kiss, you know, maybe the kiss seals it. You could say the pronouncement of the minister, like we said. Maybe you could say it's the signing of the certificate, like you mentioned. Maybe it could be the sexual consummation afterwards. I mean, any of those, what what would you say? What would you say if you go through the ceremony, but they never consummate the marriage? Is a couple really married? What happens if the minister pronounces you husband and wife and signs the marriage certificate, but the bride and groom never even exchange vows? I mean, maybe I just went rogue, you know? <laughs> Decided y'all are married. <laughs> right? What if the minister never pronounces you husband and wife, never signs the marriage certificate, but you exchanged vows and consummated the marriage later that night? Right now, our topic today is baptism, not marriage. But I think it provides an interesting comparison, though, of why it can be so difficult to understand the proper relationship between baptism and justification. And I use the term justification because the term salvation is not specific enough. Salvation, or being saved, can refer to justification. It can refer to sanctification, or it can refer to glorification. Those three terms are the beginning, middle, and end of our faith journey. Justification is the initial aspect of salvation. Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's a moment in time when God declares us righteous in Christ. Sanctification is the continuous, present aspect of salvation that brings us experientially closer to Christ. The first few verses of 1 Corinthians 15, some of which we looked at a few weeks ago, says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, justification, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So even in those few verses, both ideas of justification and sanctification are present. Notice how it said, you received. That's past tense. You received the gospel, but you also now stand in the gospel. It is an active relationship. It is that by which you are being saved. That's not past tense. That's here and now, present time. The positive response to the proclamation of the gospel brings salvation that is characterized as a completed event in the past and also as a growing reality in the present. 
And notice the end of those verses in Corinthians. It says, unless you believed in vain. Paul associates both events in both passages, Ephesians and Corinthians, with faith. You are justified by faith in Christ. You are sanctified through faith in Christ. Christ has done this work for you, and Christ is doing this work in you. In one sense, it is completed. It's like a dishwasher. You make dinner, you eat dinner, you drink stuff. All those cups and plates and pans have to be dealt with. And you and I are like those dirty dishes, those dirty plates. We were filthy inside and out. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dirty and beyond cleaning, he put us in the dishwasher of Christ. (laughs) We were made new in Christ. Right? So just follow this for a second. Right? When you get taken out of the dishwasher, you are meant to be used. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So if all you do is sit on the shelf, right, on the china cabinet, what good is it that you were washed? What good is it that you were justified? You're just sitting there in that fancy china cabinet collecting dust until you move to the next house. You have been justified to enjoy God and to proclaim the excellencies of his rule and reign in your life and in this world. There is so much more to salvation than just getting a ticket out of hell and into heaven. Do you believe that? Do we really act like we believe that? Christ was our justification. Christ continues to be our sanctification. And Christ will be our glorification. John 6.40 says, Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Salvation is characterized as a completed event in the past. Justification, as a growing reality in the present. Sanctification, and as a promised resurrection in the future. Glorification. The passages that I've included for each of those three aspects of salvation all specifically regard faith in Christ. You are justified by faith in Christ. You are sanctified through faith in Christ. You will be glorified because of faith in Christ. Now, I'm not going to charge you for that little theology lesson. (laughs) Just come back next week for another seemingly off-topic prelude to the sermon. But I've included it because when you read about salvation in the New Testament, sometimes it is referring to all three of those aspects combined. Sometimes it may just be talking about one of them. So then we get back, or we begin, the specific topic at hand. What does all of that have to do with baptism? Where does baptism fit? And so I want to focus on answering the question, is baptism required to be justified? Is baptism required to be justified? I could phrase the question another way and say, is baptism an act that partially or fully causes my justification? Or is baptism an act of obedience performed as part of my sanctification? Now, the danger with posing this question from the get-go, is baptism required to be justified? The danger is that I don't think it's really a question that the biblical authors are being asked. It's not something that they specifically felt the need to address in their teaching. 
And the reason why they don't address it specifically is because of something that I mentioned last week. For Paul and Peter and the apostles, they are writing to Christians who have all been baptized right after repentance and faith has gripped them. So when they write about and reference baptism, both the author and the audience would not necessarily need to insert a separation between faith, repentance, confession, reception of the Holy Spirit, and baptism. They wouldn't need to make a distinction between the spiritual realities represented physically in baptism from the physical act itself. If you were to ask Stephanus or Gaius or Alexander or Phoebe or other New Testament disciples that are named when they were saved, they could legitimately answer when I was baptized into Christ because they would have seen no necessary distinction between the events of that day when they came to faith were indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and they were physically baptized. For them, it was all just part of it. And they didn't have to think about the significance of any one part of it over and above the other parts. And oh man, do I wish that we had such a perspective 2,000 years later. But we don't have it that simple. Because... There are those out there who say that baptism is a necessary aspect of our justification. They say that baptism is a cause of our justification. Some argue that baptism is the culminating cause of our justification. And this is why I brought up the analogy with marriage at the beginning. It's not a perfect analogy, so we can't take it too far. But looking back to someone's wedding day, all of the expected marital union things happened. They exchanged vows and rings, and the minister pronounced them husband and wife, and he signed the marriage certificate, and they consummated the marriage that night. All those things played their role, and they were all part of the process. But here's my argument, and my argument that corresponds to our matter at hand. The vows are really the meat of that union. If both people don't say, I do, or some corresponding pledge of commitment and covenant, None of the rest of it makes a difference. That's why in movies and shows, there's always that drama. At the moment, the minister waits for the response to the question, do you take this man? Do you take this woman? Right? There's been turmoil up to that point in the relationship. The couple's been fighting for the entire week beforehand, the wedding plans. The ex-boyfriend came into the picture, you know, and caused all kinds of doubts and issues. Do I really want to marry this guy or do I want to go back to that guy? Right? But... In the end, they said, I do. They overcame the doubt, the issues. They committed. Now, what would you say if they did all that but never consummated the marriage? They became one in commitment, but they never became one intimately. In a regular scenario, that's kind of absurd. The consummation has its place. It's the physical action that represents the spiritual union of two becoming one flesh. So I might ask the question of a Christian who professes faith but refuses baptism. Why have you not been baptized? In a regular scenario, assuming you're not allergic to chlorine or something, why have you refused to physically identify yourself with Christ and his church by entering into the waters of baptism? But at the same time, In my mind, I know that baptism is not justifying that person before God or man. I know it's not required for justification, but it is expected because it is commanded. 
And it is a physical representation of your stated union with Christ. The spiritual is confessed in the physical. In marriage, the vows are really the meat of it. So it is in justification with faith and repentance. It is a conscious understanding and decision of the will on my end to vow my life to God. To vow to him my love, my surrender, and the good and the bad. And the highs and the lows, no matter what this world, what this life throws my way, I am his and he is mine. It's that moment of commitment, that initial understanding and pledging of one's entire life to God through the good news of Jesus Christ as represented in the proclamation of the gospel. If you haven't already, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to begin by looking at verses 13 and 14 in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is not the only verse we're going to look at, but we're beginning with it because it's a really good starting point for us In this discussion, when you heard the gospel proclaimed and you believed in Christ, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. God regenerated your heart. The Holy Spirit opened your eyes to see, your ears to hear, and you responded in faith. Over and over and over again, God initiates and begins the work in your heart. It begins with the action of God on our behalf and centers on the grace of God. And if there is one element of the human response that comes to the forefront of the entire discussion about any kind of salvation in the Gospels and the Epistles, it centers around faith. I believe, so you believed. Last year we went through Paul's letter to the Romans. As you look at chapters 3-5 through in Romans, Time and time again, Paul talks about justification. He answers the question, What justifies you in the face of God's wrath? As one who has openly rebelled against a good, holy, and benevolent creator, how can your debt of sin, your punishment, be taken off of the books? Romans chapter 3, verse 22. Paul writes, For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God's grace and justification is received by faith. John 3.16 For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Faith, faith in Christ, whoever believes in him. Now we're going to spend some time 
in Galatians chapter 3. So if you were in Ephesians, just turn back a few pages to Galatians chapter 3. Again, this is not going to be a typical sermon where I look at one passage and stick to it. Galatians 3, verses 26, verses 26 and 27. Galatians 3 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So the question is, is Paul equating faith and physical baptism there? Is Paul equating faith and physical baptism there? First he says, you are in Christ through faith. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Is Paul equating faith and physical baptism? Now I may catch you off guard here, but I would say both yes and no because of what I've mentioned so far. I would say yes in regard to the original reader's And that physical baptism could be taken as a figure which represents their conversion as a whole, both physically and spiritually. For them, the physical and spiritual weren't separated. They had no reason to think of physical baptism versus spiritual baptism. They'd hear that and simply think, I've been united with Christ, justified. I've put on Christ, been sanctified. I'm continuing to be sanctified. Their baptism was a reminder of their conversion. But we do have a reason to think of physical baptism versus spiritual baptism. There are many who would say that you receive the Holy Spirit when you are physically baptized. They say physical baptism spurred by faith is what finalizes your justification and seals you with the Holy Spirit. So on the other hand, I would say no. Paul is not equating faith and physical baptism in regard to justification. Specifically in the sense that we can read what he writes in those verses and understand baptism to be figuratively perceived. Spiritually, you were baptized into Christ. Who baptized you into Christ? Notice the verb there in Galatians 3.27. For as many of you as were baptized. So to me, that's what's difficult about all the times baptism is mentioned in the epistles. It's a passive verb. You were baptized. So the question is, is this a divine passive? Does it simply allude to the fact that someone else physically baptizes you, right? You were baptized by Pastor John. I was baptized by Brother Moore. Or is it a divine passive that alludes to something God has done? You were baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit of God. Spiritually and figuratively, I would say the Spirit of God did. My union with Christ is a spiritual union first and foremost. God made us alive. God united me with his Son. As his Spirit replaced my heart of stone with the heart of flesh, we received the Spirit by hearing with faith. His grace has saved us. He has made us alive together with Christ. And my response of faith in Christ proves that God did actually do that work in me. But that response didn't stop with the initial reaction of faith. 
As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. God baptized me into Christ. Justification. So now I am putting on Christ. Sanctification. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, which should just be a few pages to your right. Trying to stay close together here in the ones that we're looking at. Colossians chapter 2. Those same elements are present there. Now I'm going to start reading at verse 6. We're not going to look at all these verses, but I just want to give us some good context of what Paul writes. To see that the things I've said so far are not out of left field. Colossians 2, starting in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Right? So did you catch that? You received Christ, so you walk in him. You were justified, and now you're being sanctified. So verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now here's why I really want us to pay attention, verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. All right, so stop there. Notice what Paul just said. This circumcision is a spiritual circumcision. Ain't Nobody can circumcise you spiritually except Christ through his spirit. He says it was a circumcision made without hands. It's not physical. It's spiritual. All those who believe in Christ for justification have been spiritually circumcised. This is not the physical covenantal sign of Israel that Paul is talking about. This is the Jeremiah 31 new covenant sign he's talking about. The Joel 2 sign. Physical circumcision made by hands in the Old Testament prefigures the spiritual circumcision made without hands by the Spirit in the New Testament. He says, stop thinking physical and start thinking spiritual. And what does he talk about next? He starts talking about baptism. So do you think he's talking about physical baptism or spiritual baptism? Again, I would go back to what I said before. For the original reader, he saw no distinction. But we now can see a distinction. He's not talking about the physical act of baptism. He's talking about the spiritual act of baptism that God does. Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Right? Friends, look at what God has done for us in Christ. If you are in Christ, united with Christ, look at what he has done for you. He canceled our debt. He made us alive together with Christ. He's forgiven us all our trespasses. What a great God that we serve. What 
love the Father has lavished on us. In Christ, we were spiritually circumcised. In Christ, we were spiritually buried with him in baptism, in which we were also spiritually raised with him through faith. This was the powerful work of God. So do you see the connection that Paul makes here? Some would point out that this is a text that connects physical circumcision in the Old Testament with baptism in the New Testament. But the circumcision Paul is talking about is spiritual. It's a work only God can do, and we receive it through faith. So it only makes sense that the baptism Paul is talking about is spiritual. It's a work only God can do. And a passage like this is why we ought to be able to see why it's completely legitimate for us to think of more than just physical baptism when baptism is referenced in the New Testament epistles. And I don't want to take away from the place and importance of physical baptism. We are commanded to do it. We saw that last week in the Great Commission from Jesus himself. But physical baptism is only a sign of the spiritual baptism that has already been done in our hearts. So physical baptism only makes sense for those who have been spiritually baptized. We can't be buried with Christ and raised with him through faith if we don't have faith. The whole premise revolves around whether or not faith has been poured into our hearts. So let me begin to wrap this up by looking at one more text. You have to go back a few more pages to Romans chapter 4 if you want to look at this. If I can even get there. Romans chapter 4. As I mentioned earlier, Romans chapter 4 is in the middle of Paul's discussion about the prominence of faith in relationship to justification. And then verse 11 of chapter 4. Paul specifically underscores the relationship between physical circumcision and faith, which I think can be used as a good analogy, as John Piper does, with physical baptism as well. So Romans 4.11 says he, talking about Abraham, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So notice there, the prominence of faith. Abraham's righteousness was by faith before he was physically circumcised. So if you make the analogy with physical physical circumcision and physical baptism, you could say this. We received the sign of baptism as a seal of the righteousness that we had by faith while we were still physically unbaptized. It's just an analogy, but from that analogy, I would argue two points. And from what I've said in the rest of the sermon. Physical baptism is for believers. It is for those who have faith. Our righteousness has been received by faith, like Abraham. So why would we baptize those who do not have faith? It's an outward sign for an inward reality. And my second point is an offshoot of the first point, and really the main thrust of what I've 
been saying all along. Physical baptism does not justify us. Physical baptism does not produce righteousness in us. The righteousness that we have has been received by faith. It has not been received through physical baptism. It has been received through our spiritual baptism. The grace of God applied by the Spirit of God because of the sacrifice and resurrection of the Son of God. So the two questions that I have for us today are these as we end. Number one, have you been justified by faith in Christ? Have you been justified by faith in Christ? If you have not, what's holding you back? You have an opportunity right now in this moment to respond to the call of the gospel on your life. And the second question, if you have been justified, are you living like you have been justified in Christ? If you have been justified, are you living like you have been justified in Christ? Are you daily putting off the old self, the sins and the worries of this life, and are you putting on Christ? Live out your sanctification. Now, I don't know whether you're going to sigh or not, but I'm still not done talking about baptism. But our time today has come to an end. So we'll at least have one more, another talk of baptism next week, Lord willing. But I pray that you have learned and are refreshed and been encouraged by what has been said so far today. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time together and looking at a few passages in your word. God, give us grace. Now, there's so much that we, it's just difficult to understand. There's so many different thoughts and opinions and interpretations. God, we need your spirit to guide us into truth. And we know that your word is truth. So we don't, we don't seek to understand these things from our own logic, but from what you have given to us in your authoritative and sufficient word. So God, help us to be people who apply your word to our hearts, to our lives, that we would honor you, that we would be a people who proclaim the gospel, that we would be a people who build each other up through that proclamation of the gospel in each other's lives, and that we would send each other out on mission to proclaim that same gospel. God, help us to be those people, because we really do believe that that is what would bring you honor and glory here in Abingdon and in whatever effect we can have around the world through the stewardship of the grace and materials that you have given to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.